The wealth management industry is changing, technology is rapidly evolving, and global pandemics can change our business model in the blink of an eye. In this series, we look forward and answer this question. What do wealth management firms need to be doing today in order to deliver on the future of advice tomorrow? This is the future of advice. Hello, friends, clients, and fellow financial advisors. My name is Ron Bullis, and I am the CEO and founder of LifeWorks Advisors. My guest on today's show is the CEO and co-founder of one of the fastest and most innovative RAAs in the wealth management industry. To date, he's raised over $58 million of venture capital for his firm, and he's challenging the traditional asset-based fee model in our industry. His story is unique and compelling, and his personal mission for transforming the wealth management industry is contagious. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Welcome to the Future of Advice, Andrews Jones. Great to be here, thanks for having me. I have been following your firm now from the sidelines for a few years. Uh, very excited to have this conversation. Uh, we were introduced by a, a mutual acquaintance that said the two of us should connect because we're both trying to challenge some of the status quo in the industry and, and um, have some similar viewpoints on things like clients' best interests, the fiduciary rule, business models, things like that. So I've got a ton of questions for you. Yeah. But let's start with something right off your bio on your website. You list two reasons for kind of the connection back to the wealth management industry. Sure. Um, and you know, you came from technology VC investor to wealth management, which is not the maybe there's not a normal path, but you kind of took an interesting road to get there. But you list something that I want to just maybe start us out with. Um, actually, no, let's do this. Let's back up a second. Um, for those that don't know about Facet Wealth and uh, what you guys are doing, just give an overview of the firm, when you started, how many employees, yeah. where you guys are at. Yeah, so at Facet, we are basically building financial planning the way that it should be. Um, we see this enormous hole in the industry where you've got a, about 38 million households that have uh, more nuance and complexity in their financial life than what a DIY digital solution like a robo-advisor can really help with, but they don't have the asset base that's interesting to traditional advisors. So um, these 38 million households, they represent like $44 trillion of assets. So it's not that they don't have money, but um, about 40 trillion of that is either in primary residential real estate or some sort of retirement uh, account that a traditional advisor can't fee on. So like a setup in their 401k or 403b or something. Exactly. Yep. Um, and so these people have financial planning needs, right? And when we talk about financial planning, we're not talking about, um, you know, here's a 200 page e-money plan. Uh, by the way, the answer is a 7% commission annuity, right? We're talking about things like cash flow, what's coming in every month, what's going out. Um, starting a family. How should I think about saving for my kids' college when you know they're not even born yet? Uh, how do I think about paying for remodeling the the guest room and turning it into a nursery? I mean, all like we have this tagline, which is that every uh, decision is a financial decision in your life, and so we really view that financial planning needs to take into account every aspect of of someone's life. Um, we don't charge an asset-based fee. We charge a flat annual subscription that's tied to the services we're providing. So it really is a, you know, this is what you're paying for and this is what you're getting. And we can draw a very clear line to the value that you're receiving for the, the money that you're paying us. Um, we're totally virtual. So I know we'll get into that in a little yes. bit. But, uh, but the company is in, um, I think we have employees in 42 different states. We have about 300 people on the team right now. So your payroll department loves you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pretty sure we outsource that. But um, 
But yeah, so we have people in 40 different states. Uh, we have clients in all 50 states. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, we just see this enormous, enormous opportunity of, of folks that, you know, need the help, but there are no good solutions uh, in the industry or minimally good solutions for them. Yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that there's, uh, I've seen it over the 14 years I've been in the industry, right? That, you know, either advisors have a, they've been coached to have a minimum asset size, right? Or a, um, you know, a minimum account size. And what happens is you find these people that have money tied up in a 401k or a 403b, and because it's not billable, they sell them some insurance or a crappy annuity product and move on. Yeah, 100%. And that, that's the way it is. So you know, your co-founders of Facet have, you guys all share some interesting stories about family connections to the industry. Yeah. Let's, let's go back, because I started, you know, I found it really interesting that you're talking about continuing your mom's legacy. So your mom was, uh, was involved in the 401k space. Tell us a little bit more about. Yeah. So for, first of all, I'll say, um, you know, we're all born with, uh, you know, with, with certain advantages. And, and my number one was was the mother that I have. She's been an amazing, amazing influence in my life. Um, and, you know, we're very close, uh, which is which is awesome. She um, was at Fidelity for most of her career, okay. spent, I think, about 20 years there and worked on the team that um, that built their whole 401k business into what it is today. And so when she talks about um, her, her legacy in financial services, you know, one of the things that she's the proudest of is that she's helped millions of Americans save for retirement. And so um, when I think about what we're doing at Facet is, you know, our goal is to help millions of Americans have a better financial life in general. And so I think it's a really nice continuation of, uh, of, of the work that she's done and just sort of as the you know, as the, as the industry has evolved and takes into account more and more what people actually need and how to help them live a better life and putting the customer first, um, I, I see that as a really nice nice way for, for me to kind of, you know, be in the family business, so to speak. Yeah, that, I mean, that's awesome. I yeah. think that it's easy for those of us in the industry sometimes to lose connection to the fact that the ripple effect of what we're doing over a long career is, is touching you know, thousands, tens of thousands, in your mom's case, millions of people. Yeah. Your work. That's awesome. One of the things that it, that we, I think, has have has allowed us to build the culture that we have internally. And, you know, part of the, one of the reasons why we're able to have a 300 person totally virtual workforce is that everyone is really tied into the mission. And we actually have a Slack channel um, uh, on uh, that's called Dreams Made Possible. So our internal communications tool, right? It's um, this channel is called Dreams Made Possible, which is uh, every time one of our uh, advisors helps one of the their clients hit a goal, uh, they they post about it so the whole company can see. And we get like three or four of those a day. And it's you know starting a family, like you know we have pictures of kids that have been born that get get that show up all the time we have you know here's the first house that someone got to, to buy you know i mean there's all sorts of and the goals are, are i mean sometimes we have people who ask us about like um you know how, how can i save to go on a two-week beach vacation with my family and then they send us a picture of the whole family at the beach it's i mean these are like these are i think the 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 real this is the real goodness in financial planning and this is where um we actually are in a noble profession um you know if we if we do it the right way yeah and i love the word noble my business coach uh, used that word years ago when I first met him. Mm -hmm. um, and it's framed everything we've done at LifeWorks too, right? Getting to have the blessing of tagging along with our clients through both the ups and downs and, yep. and watching them turn you know, their money, their life's work into the things that matter most, yeah. right? I mean, it's, it's an amazing profession to get paid yeah. to do that, Yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so each of your co-founders has a has an interesting story. I read I read them. You know the corollary, right, is that it connects back to they had a family member or a loved one that was maybe being sold a product, 
Um, I want to read something off of your bio, yeah. and then we're going to dig right into something that shouldn't be controversial in our industry, but it still is. Yeah. So here, here's a quick quote from your bio. In 2015, the U.S. Department of Labor proposed the fiduciary rule, which would have required financial advisors to act in the best interests of their clients. The pushback from the industry was fierce. If this rule was passed, the industry said, 8 million households would lose their advisor relationship because their advisor could not afford to both service them and act in their best interest at the same time. And this is the line I love. This was the industry basically admitting that its business model was to take advantage of clients. <laughs> That's the second paragraph on your bio on your website. Yeah. Expound more on it. Well, first of all, I'll say our, our internal comms team made me tone that down. I usually like to say <laughs> this is uh, the industry publicly admitted that they're screwing 8 million of their clients. Wow. Um, I, I just, I mean, if, if, if that is their reasoning is that, hey, we can't afford to both act in their best interest and serve some at the same time, and yet here we are still sending them a bill every month or every quarter or every year, then what are you doing, yeah. right? Um, but this gets back to, I think, the, the, the whole origin story, which is when we saw that, um, th that was when the light bulb went off and they said, wow, this is a, a real need because you have people that are opting into this, right? And the industry's done a very good job of sort of obfuscating uh, you know, what you're actually paying for and what you're actually getting. So, I mean, one of the, the most uh, insane things to me is when we uh, poll our clients or prospective clients, we say, you know, how much do you think you're paying your yeah, current right, advisor? Yeah. A lot of them say, oh, I don't pay my advisor anything. And it's like, how do you think these, these folks are making money? Um, so yeah, no, it's a, it, it's a huge, and, and look, I think I, I will temper this a little bit by saying that it's easy to sort of uh, you know, throw stones at the industry. I think that there are a lot of individual advisors who are in this for the right reasons, yeah. but the way that the incentives are just structured and also sort of the, how the norms have been established um, you know, they're all benefiting off of off of sort of industry pricing structures that that you know started decades ago. Yeah, and I would agree with that. I think I've met a lot of really great advisors, and I bumped into some ones that I think you know should be ran out of the industry. Everybody yeah. knows those. I do think the average individual advisor is in it for the right reasons, but the legacy of our of our industry, maybe the the pedigree, is packaging products and selling them. Yep. Right. It was access to the stock market. Then it became you know kind of confounded or correlated with insurance and then mutual funds and then, you know, away we went. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the large firm that I started my career at, when I got into fee-based financial planning, I was one of maybe, you know, several hundred advisors that was there. And, and there, there are great firms, so I'm not meaning anything derogatory about it, but they had to take this position that while we were engaged in fee-based planning with a client, we were acting as a fiduciary. Mm -hmm. And then when we delivered their plan and the client signed off on it, we could then go back to selling and our relationship would magically transition back to a broker-dealer <laughs> relationship, yeah. right? And I think part of the reason was they had proprietary products and, and they were like, let's say they were really good products. Mm -hmm. They are, but I had to somehow tell myself, and this is, this is when the light bulb went off for me when I got into you know, fee-based planning, I had a, a large prospect that said, unless you can give me an invoice and a list of your services and I can write you a check, don't ever call on me again. And it was like, well, I can't do that. So I figured out how to do it, but anyway, this idea that you could be a fiduciary and then stop being a fiduciary and then be a fiduciary and then stop, it'd be like me saying I can be a dad today and then tomorrow I don't. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a real issue. So, so let's deconstruct what's yeah. actually going on. Yeah. So um, this whole industry has come about basically because of an information asymmetry, right? Okay. And so I think, um, you know, if you think about like the very beginnings of the stockbroker, right? You had someone call up and say, hey, I've got a really hot tip for you, buy this stock. 
they were, you know, worked on Wall Street and they had better information. And so, you know, they could give you a hot tip. Sometimes you made money, sometimes you didn't, whatever, but you got a commission and you were willing to pay for that access to information. Then it became apparent that it's like, okay, well, that, when you actually look at sort of the performance of, you know, that approach, like, you're not, you know, you, <laughs> that's you're basically, you know, getting sold a stock. You're not buying a stock. Um, and then you had sort of the, you know, the the evolution of mutual funds and ETFs and that sort of thing. And so, uh, you know, you could have a much broader portfolio. The returns were generally better and more stable. Um, access to those products were still somewhat controlled. So you still had that that information asymmetry. And so you had now advisors who are essentially saying, hey, you know. I understand which funds to pick, and and you know I can get you a better uh, return than than if you try and do this yourself or you know work with someone else. And so again, you can still sort of justify the asset based fee under under that model. But now in the last call it fifteen years, the idea of uh, the 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 world of asset management and investment management is so commoditized, and you know with the exception of uh, very few sort of like you know private funds and you know VC funds or PE funds. Basically, any investor can get access to any instrument, and the returns are, you know, largely the same. Um, and and you know, when you sort of take the risk reward into, uh, you know, into account, for ninety eight percent of investors out there, the answer is sticking in a low cost ETF, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, n no longer can you actually say with a straight face, I as an advisor am adding alpha to your portfolio. Yeah. Uh, because if you have someone who's saying to you, hey, I can you know, beat the market, you should run the other way as fast as you possibly can. Agreed. Right? Agreed. So, um, so the value prop has changed, but the way that they're pricing has not. And I think, you know, and again, to kind of throw a bone to the, you know, the broader advisor community, I think that folks are realizing more and more that uh, financial planning is actually a value prop in and of itself and that there is real value to it and you can really help people a lot more with financial planning as opposed to, uh, you know, trying to, to pick better stocks or better funds. Um, I think it was Vanguard came out with the advisor alpha yeah. study, right? And then Morningstar gamma study, right? I mean, you know, working with a human, having a human holding you accountable, there is huge value in that. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, but that's more of like a therapist relationship. It's not a stock picker relationship. And I think that, you know, the, the pricing mechanisms of the industry have not caught up mm -hmm. to that. Um, and I think it's gonna be a while before they do. Uh, because the economic rents that uh, that people can charge are just so great, you know, why on earth would you would you uh, you know give away a sixty percent gross margin, uh, you know, AUM based business model where you know you have ninety eight percent annual retention because the client doesn't see the money leaving the account, right. uh, you know, when instead moving to an hourly or you know annual subscription model where they have to write a check for it or put a, it on their credit card. You right. got to provide value every single time you bill them, right? It's harder work. Um, so, you know, and, and arguably probably for less money. So, you know, it's, uh, you can see why, why we are where we are, but, um, you know, my longer term view is that, uh, you know, the, the, the market always moves towards efficiency. And at some point this, this imbalance will work itself out. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that the explosion of small RIAs, advisors, the being large firms, and, and a lot of them still run up an AUM based fee and, um, you know, Back when I first started the podcast, one of my first guests was was Marty Bicknell, the CEO of Mariner, and mm -hmm. you know he disagrees with me in terms of you know my viewpoint that the AUM based fee is maybe going to fade out and it's going to be replaced by subscription retainer flat fees. Yeah. And, and I don't know whether he's going to be right or I'm going to be right. That's that's not the point. Uh, the idea though is the majority still do. So it's kind of it's easier to explain to a client, I think, for a lot of advisors, whether they've been in the business a few years or a lot of years, is well, this is just kind of how 
<laughs> this is how it is. This is how it is, yeah. right? Everybody does it. It's like going to the DMV, right? Yeah. You take a number, you stand in line, you wait till you're called. It's just, it is what it is. But it's, a, it's an interesting thing, though, because we might be the only industry that we get paid more every year for doing the same amount of work. Right. You know, uh, market goes up 17%. My business grows by maybe not 17, maybe 15%. Yeah. And I don't have to do any more work. Well, I mean, that's, that's I think, the, the charitable view of that. I mean, the, the one that I always go back to is like, okay, so say that, you know, you're a client of an advisor. Yeah. You do a great job at work. You get a $50,000 bonus. Um, you know, you should probably invest a, a chunk of that. Why should you pay your advisor an extra $500 a year because you worked your tail off last year? You know, yeah. doesn't doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. It certainly has challenges to it. And while every business at some level could be argued that it has a conflict, whether it's a subscription-based one like yours and mine, or a flat fee or an AUM, right? We our desire is still to turn the client or the prospect into a client and, and sell our services. Sure. Th this idea that you know by simply having an, an AUM fee that you can be a fiduciary, right? Or that you're a fee-based planner. Um, I did a training a couple of years back and I asked a whole bunch of advisors, you know, how many of you would consider yourself fee-based advisors? Like every hand in the room went up. Mm -hmm. I said, how many of you send an invoice to your client every month and they write you a check for it? Like looked around the room, there was two hands, like two mm -hmm. hands up. I was like, that is truly maybe fee-based planning, like client signing up for X, Y, and Z, they're directly paying you for this and you have to deliver. And if you don't, they fire you. Right. right. So I think it's an interesting thing. So this feeds into the idea of one of the things that I think is a challenge in the industry, which is the business model. Mm -hmm. So driven in part by the asymmetry of information, um, I've talked about this before with, with guests, what I call the democratization of finance, right? Everybody with a iPad, smartphone, whatever, they actually can have access to the markets easier in some regards than advisors can because there's no compliance oversight right right in some regards they can trade equities they can trade options they can do cryptocurrencies and, and advisors sometimes have their hands rightly or wrongly so that's maybe for a whole other conversation yeah. uh tied up in regulation but this democratization this access that you know fintech and technology has provided to people has moved so quickly and the business model hasn't shifted so when you guys were setting up Facet, mm -hmm. um, let's talk a little bit about the business model, you know, kind of problem the industry has. We've already been in a little bit. You guys decided to go into the subscription fee model. Tell us a little about how you guys have your business model set up for your clients. Do you guys charge monthly or annually, one time? Like, how, how is your business model set up? Yeah, so, you know, so, so a, a couple kind of core tenets for our, you know, for how we started the company. One was that, um, you know, we believe in the value of the human relationship. And so... Everything that we thought about was, um, you know, the, again, the, the real value in working with advisors, having that accountability partner, having that person who can sit there and, and, you know, kind of pick up the nuance in your situation and sort of help you navigate not just the technical aspects of financial planning, but also the emotional ones. And so we said, okay, how can we build a model that's profitable to just enable that human to human relationship and, um, and maximize the amount of time that our clients and our advisors spend together, basically minimize everything else. Um, the technical aspects of financial planning um, are, are basically all automatable, and so that's that's what we did. So we so so I'm telling you a little bit about our productivity model, yeah. but it all kind of blends together. Which is, um, you know, the average advisor today spends works with about 75 clients. Um, ours work with between 250 and 300. And the way that we sort of have done that is, um, if you're if you're spending uh, an hour of client facing time, you're you're probably spending about three hours of time at least, at least, yeah. right, prepping or or wrapping up from that meeting, and a lot more in the first year of the relationship when you're getting everything onboarded and kind of getting up to speed. So, 
that three hours of prep and wrap up is very low value uh, value added human time. It's like going into a bunch of different systems. It's you know pulling reports. It's like you know mapping the data in Excel to make sure it all lines up. Um, again, this is all stuff that technology can solve. So, um, so kind of going back to uh, my tech roots, we built a platform that essentially uh, eliminates that three hours of, of non-client facing time and, and automates the vast majority of it. So, you know, our advisors are, are prepping in, you know, 10 to 15 minutes for a, for a client meeting. The quality, I would argue, has actually gone up because they can spend a lot more time covering a much the broader that spectrum. things care about. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, and this is where, like, you know, technology is deflationary, right? Like, you can, over time, you have, uh, you have higher quality and lower cost, um, and it's just this, like, you know, beautiful kind of positive sum effect. Yeah. So, um, so that, that's, that's essentially what we did. And then we said, okay, well, you know, given sort of how our supply side is going to look, um, you know, let's figure out how we price it so that, um, you know, it's, it's accessible to uh, more clients, which is, or, you know, it's, it's accessible to a broader market. Um, and then, you know, let's think about how we price it so that it, it's, you know, totally transparent and totally, um, you know, we're, we're, we're on the same side as the no, no, conflict free. Yeah. And so, uh, and so that's how we arrived at the, at the subscription model. And basically we have an algorithm when we onboard a client, we look at sort of, you know, all the different things we're going to be doing for them. We have a two-step uh, or a two-call uh, uh, onboarding sales and onboarding process where we gather a bunch of data about the client ahead of time. And so we have a very good sense of, okay, here's how and much. This is before they've signed up. So you guys are doing Correct. some kind of pre-work discovery that's leading to what some people might kind of call like the offer or the, the client engagement letter or something like this. Exactly. Okay. Yep. And so, so in the first two calls, they, they meet with one of our uh, client success managers who are typically not CFPs. Yep. Um, and then, uh, and then basically based on what we find out about them, we, you know, number one, come up with the right price. To give you a sense, our average client pays us uh, $2,600 a year. Okay. Um, so, you know, and, and we've sort of run the, the, the numbers on that. And, you know, if they went to a sort of traditional advisor, like a big shop, yeah. um, you know, they'd probably be closer to six or 7,000 bucks a year. Uh, if they could even mortgage, because we have a lot of clients, we only, we only manage money for 50% of our clients. We'll get into that. Yeah. I want to I I get into that one. For sure. In yeah. detail. Yeah. Um, and actually, while we're on this topic, 75% of our clients have never worked with a financial advisor before. Really? Yeah. So you're not finding that you guys are building clients by, by I'm going to say stealing. That's not the right word. By transitioning them or, or, or providing them a better option than the advisor they're at now. You guys are truly finding people that have never worked with an advisor. That's fascinating. Exactly. Well, go back to our whole origin story around, yeah. you know, there's 38 million households out yeah. there. Um, and, you know, it, it, it seems like only 8 million or so actually work with an advisor today. Yeah, I've so, seen that number around too. Something yeah. like that, 8 to 10 million. Yeah, so... Funny enough, matches up exactly with the uh, you know the industry pushback on the DOL rule, right? But um, but in, in any event, uh, so so um, uh, so yeah, so we so we you know we give them uh, the price, but then we also um, basically you know figure out okay who are we going to match them to from an advisor standpoint? Because we have you know clients that are going through a divorce, and we have advisors who specialize in that, or we have clients who are starting a family, yeah. um, <laughs> starting family, ending a family, right? And yeah. uh, and so we uh, you know we have advisors who specialize in that. So uh, so we try and match the the sort of client need with the advisor skill set, um, uh, you know, at least from a personality standpoint. Yeah, yeah. I think that's interesting. I, you know, as I talk to individual advisors and even small firms, one of the things that seems to me it seems clear to me, and, and it just could be my bias, is that 
to survive in the future if an advisor has kind of what I'll call a lifestyle practice. They need to get really, really niche. Yeah. Right? Because what you're describing to me is you guys are essentially saying we have a big enough kind of stable of advisors, right? Men, women, backgrounds, different specialties, et cetera, that you can align that client with somebody that's that's really close to them in terms of the work they're doing. And yes. the individual advisory practice, the traditional advisory practice, which is, you know, kind of bring on everybody who just has a certain income threshold. Yeah. Or as a base threshold. Eventually you wind up with engineers and business owners and a doctor or two and and there's really no way to connect all of them. Yeah, yeah, we're we're a bit of a unique animal because we have 135 CFPs right now, so it's you know we have that sort of scale. Um, What's the is, average age of your advisor? This is a PS. Just curious. Uh, that is a good question. I think um, if you had to guess, if I had to guess, I'd probably say late 30s, early 40s. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you guys are a unique animal. The average age of an advisor in the industry is what 58? Yeah. 60? Yeah. Um, and we have and we have some of those, right? I mean, we um, you know in general, I think we. The types of advisors who work well with us are are um, like folks that are coming out of like a call center environment, you know, Got answering it. an eight hundred number, yep. something like that. Like not as much sort of independent yep. advisors who've run a lifestyle business before. We're we're different, you know, yep. d different work style than that. Um, but um, but if I could kind of give you an analogy that yep. I've used, which is that if you sort of map where we are to like the healthcare industry. Right. Okay. So uh, just bear with me for a minute. Okay. So think about like you know the Wild West in the 1800s. You had like the snake oil salesman, you know, selling the Grandma's magical elixir. Exactly. That was just the, the the elixir. And I would say that that was the stockbrokers in the 70s and 80s. Okay. Okay. Um, and then you have uh, where I think we are now, sort of like the village doctor phase where, you know, this is what, maybe 40s, 50s, where you basically are differentiated by geography and relationships. Yeah. And so you've got someone who's sitting in a small town who, uh, you know, is, is a known entity and everyone within 30 miles of them um, is, is, is their, their patient. And I would say that's largely how advisors differentiate right now. Yeah. Um, you know, you think about, you know, pick your small town in the USA, you've got uh, a, a set of advisors who are sort of like the pillars of their community. Um, they develop business primarily through referrals from, uh, from existing clients or by doing things like, you know, sponsoring the, the local uh, charity events, golf outings, bingo. school boosters. Right. Um, I would argue that that is not a differentiator, and I would think when you know when you're working in a commoditized world, which we've already established as asset management is, um, the way that you sell is through relationships. So this all follows, you know, very, like the only way you differentiate is through relationships. So this this all makes a ton of sense. But I think you hit the nail on the head. The world that we're moving to is around specialization. Um, and if you think about what the healthcare industry looks like today, you might go to New York to see a specialist for you know whatever uh, ailment or you know you, it, it is that you have, or if you have like a, a certain type of surgery that you need to have, you know there might be a doctor um, you know in uh, um, uh, Minnesota who's you know who's, who's uh, the the best person to go and see that. And we live in a world now where you can do that, right? Like you don't actually need to sit down face to face with your advisor. Um, like I would much rather have a video call with my advisor and talk about, you know, the highly specialized planning that I need instead of like, you know, oh, I can get in my car and drive down the street and then I got to deal with parking and like getting my parking ticket validated and all that. Like there's a lot of like, you know, sort of legacy stuff that's still out there that I think fast forward a few years from now, it's going to disappear. Yeah, I mean, we moved our office out of our, I mean, Grand Rapids is not nearly the size of San Francisco where we're sitting here for this this interview. Um, 
we moved our office out of the kind of the downtown corridor because clients were saying, you know, you know, finding a parking spot can be challenging. And we were looking at, you know, just the cost of having, you know, kind of, let's say, high rent, you know, office district, paying for parking, things like this. And we're like, it doesn't, that actually doesn't add any value to any of our clients. Yeah. Right. So we, we moved out to the suburbs, have a nice office, parking's free, it's easy for people to find us. But this idea of the village, you know, doctor is one that I find interesting because what also happens in our industry right now, right, is you have this conflation of titles. You can have somebody at a large insurance firm that calls himself a wealth management advisor, and mm. you can run into somebody at a large wirehouse that calls himself that. They all might say they do financial planning, or they're all doing advising, yet they could be selling products or gathering assets or truly maybe more, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies and being seen in the community, right? Yeah. And I don't mean anything, no disrespect to any of those, because I don't think you do either, but um, it's kind of this generalist idea. Yeah. And yet everything else in the world is rushing or has already arrived at special specialization. The healthcare industry one is a great one. I wouldn't want to go see my, you know, my family doctor if I had a hole in my heart yeah. and I needed heart surgery, Yeah. right? I'd say, well, who is the best damn, you know, th thoracic surgeon uh, or cardiac surgeon? And in, in, in I want to go see that person. Totally. Right. And I think we run it. We're starting to see this more, but it's 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 still running into this idea of the the village uh, doctor. I like that analogy. And part of it, and this is a, a third rail that I yeah. certainly don't want to step on, but you know, there isn't really like one professional standard, right? And I know that there's oh, absolutely all sorts of bickering between various organizations yeah. around what it should be. Yeah. Um, but that is that is part of the problem. Yeah. And so I think until that that gets established, um, you know, there it's it's going to be a while before that uh, you know before that happens. And I don't think there's anything wrong with a sales business model, right? I actually think that the work that you know, I mean, I own a bunch of insurance, both personal insurance and work insurance and health benefit, like there's a valid reason to have a distribution model where people are paid a commission and it's product-based, that's great. We should just though try and get the industry to agree on, let's make sure the titles are clear to the client. Yeah. So the client doesn't think they're getting the, you know, the cardiac surgeon when they're getting the village, you know, doctor, right? Totally, and, and also like, you know, there's a, there's a disintermediation between the person who's doing your planning and the person who's selling you stuff, right? So like this is one we run into all the time where we help our clients with insurance. Uh, so first of all, actually, let me let me yeah. back up, which is, you know, I talked about our onboard sales and onboarding yeah. process. Oh, yeah, yeah, let's get back to that. Yeah, but so we don't comp our planners on sales at all, right? So none, none of our planners are expected to develop business um, to sell a client or to uh, sell a product. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, a super important part of our sort of like conflict-free model. But... There are all sorts of things where um, the right answer for the client is you need some sort of financial product yeah. um, or additional service like you know estate planning, yeah. um, and uh, and so you know and and insurance is my favorite one because you actually it's illegal to not take a commission. Correct. Yeah. Right? The the, the 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 products themselves have to have it built into the contract. Yeah. And if you don't, it's some form of rebating or yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We've run into this one too. Yeah. So we actually we donate all those commissions to financial literacy programs. Interesting. Yeah. Because we say, hey, like we can definitely get you best execution on this. Yeah. Um, but rather than you think that we're taking money on the side, like hey, you know, here we're sponsoring a school in Baltimore to uh, you know with a financial literacy program. So, um, so that that's how we kind of work our way around that one. 
Um, but yeah, but I think that there's a disintermediation in general where I think you can have someone who is, the, they are paid to be the planner mm -hmm. and they are paid to be the, the fiduciary. Yep. They might recommend a product. And then, say, and I think it's also totally fair game to say, hey, you know what? We have three or four preferred providers who we've vetted and they are fiduciary products yep. uh, or, or, you know, we, we can get it with our fiduciary lens. We can recommend these products. Yep. Um, and, you know, you can choose which one you want, but I'm not going to make any, any money off of it. And I think, and, and, you know, the person who's selling one of those products, like they should, you know, however that business model set up, they want to make, uh, make a commission off of that. Again, I don't, I don't disagree with that, but I think that you can disintermediate, yeah. disintermediate the two roles. Yeah. And I think that that's, um, that's going to be super important. Yeah. And if you don't, all roads lead to buying a product or bringing in assets. Right. And that's, I think back to my first point about, I, I see two business models that are brother and sister, you know, giving away advice to sell a product giving away advice to gather assets. I, yeah. I, think, I think they should be broken apart. And this, and, you know, there's a, a book called Measure What Matters by John Doerr. Oh yeah, our the OKR team, framework. Our, yeah. our team follows it. Yeah. Um, something that, uh, you know, across kind of um, connection is one of my favorite books is Essentialism by Greg McEwen. And he has a quote in there, I think it's from John Maxwell, that goes something like, you know, very few things in this world are exceptionally valuable. In fact, most things are not valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and what I find interesting is our, our industry tends to reward people who are the best salespeople. Yeah. In, a, in the current model, right? You're breaking this framework up. So your advisors are not paid a higher commission or bonus or payout structure by bringing in new clients. Their job is to be really, if I'm hearing you right, your business model is, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Like CFP, like your job is to be an amazing fiduciary advisor for the client. Yeah. Let facet go out to market, bring in clients, you do this. So how do you, how do you comp and reward? I don't have to get into specifics, but as we talk about you know, that, I think one of the things I hear from firm owners um, is that if there's not some type of compensation tied to bringing in new clients and that advisor might not ever become profitable and pay for themselves, right? There's, there's a massive issue out there in the industry around like client acquisition and development, but how do you, how do you have your system structured then to incentivize or, or to measure what matters, then monetize what matters for that advisory role? So um, so from a, an advisor standpoint, we pay them a salary, uh, a flat salary, and a bonus tied to basically client satisfaction, retention, yep. and, um, and referrals. Uh, and they're not, again, they're not, we're not asking them to develop business, but if someone refers a client, that's, you know, that's a, a very happy client, right? Yep. Um, and then, you know, from a sort of like, you know, measuring what matters, we look at one of the, the great benefits of this industry is the longevity of the client relationships. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, there's this crazy stat that like, I think the, the annual average annual retention is like 97%. And yet the, the NPS and net promoter score average for the industry is like four. 30, yeah, it's <laughs> got 34, but yeah. Um, so, you know, you, this is, there's this like wildly interesting d dynamic where you basically have like, miserable clients who never leave yeah. right um you know which which by the way is like the key that that is the most fertile ground to start uh, a disruptive company in um but anyways so so we look at we look at it from um you know we can count on a long client uh lifetime with us um you know we don't factor in 97 percent annual retention but you know in, in the 90s, yeah. right? So, so we say, hey, we're going to have a client for you know at least 10, if not more, years, um, and you know we can look at the uh, the sort of you know 
the 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 the, the long term gross margin streams that we're going to be getting from those uh, from those clients, and we're okay to pay more upfront in sales costs, um, knowing that we're going to have that client for a long time. So you know this is a kind of classic SaaS metric of LTV to CAC ratio. And um, and you know we're very confident. We've been around for six years at this point. We're you know we're very confident in in sort of you know the client longevity. Yeah. Our gross. You're seeing your growth. numbers that you started projecting back when you set your firm up actually playing out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but you know we're thinking about okay, what's the you know with every dollar that we spend in client acquisition, you know we get like eleven dollars back in the long run, and so. Um, so we're very comfortable to, you know, we'll, we'll turn that crank all day long. Yeah. It's different. It's a very different model than most advisors because we're burning cash, right? And you mentioned in the beginning, we've raised a ton of venture capital. Yeah. Um, we will raise more. Um, and so, you know, we burn a lot of cash. So we're not focused on the, okay, what's our advisor take-home pay? You know, how can every single person in the firm make $400,000 this year? Yeah. That's not it. It's yeah. the, the value in the long term is in the equity. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, so again, it's, it's a totally, totally different model. And we're okay to go negative on an absolute profitability basis for a long time yeah. um, in, order to, in order to achieve that. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, this is the, you know, your background was in, in, in technology and venture capital and, and stuff. Mine, mine wasn't. But one of the things that I've seen about this space is because of the long-term annual recurring revenue, right? It, it's very similar to a SaaS model business. Mm -hmm. Advisors and firms, if they studied those businesses, could wrap their heads around acquiring clients and, and paying more for clients or being more aggressive. I, in fact, I, I'd love to see more firms come out there and uh, even start up RAAs and, and raise capital to go out there and acquire a client bases, whether it's organic marketing or buying practices, because I I just look at it and I think the, the math is, if you, if you treat the clients well, mm -hmm. right, the math is, is pretty powerful. It's a really profitable business, right? You just have to get out of the idea of, you know, he who brings in the clients should take home half of the revenue. That's a terrible business model. Agreed. <laughs> right? Um, because you don't have any margin to invest and to pay things back and to hire the right staff, right? And I mean, once again, it's a conflict. It doesn't align. The value yeah. that a client receives is not from who sells them, right? It's yeah. from who services them over the long run. Yeah. 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 I, do, I do think we're going to see a lot more consolidation in this market, yeah. right? I mean, I think just in general, it's what, like 30,000 RIAs out there. And, um, you know, the largest, the, the, the retail-facing uh Firm with the or the, you know the firm with the largest uh, sort of you know wealth management market share is, is Fidelity's retail business, yeah. and they have like ten percent. Yeah. And so you know there's room for another Fidelity sized company out there. Uh, and between the two of them, there'd still be eighty percent of the market. Yeah. And that you know I just over time like there has to be consolidation. Going back to the healthcare market, yeah. very few independent village doctors out there these days, right? Yeah. Um, They've all been gobbled up by large medical practices, hospital groups, or insurance companies. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting, sort of pre-pandemic, people were talking a lot about, oh, there's going to be the regional and the super regional RIAs. Uh, I think post-pandemic, geography is not going to matter at all, Correct. right? It's yeah. going to be, t t it's going to be totally different. Um, you know, it's, it's a very, very different value problem. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've gotten, I, I kind of just an, an absolute privilege to get to have interviewed some great people in the space, you, you included and get a sense of you know, that, that same understanding of the opportunity that exists out there. I had um, somebody once ask me, well, aren't you, you know, kind of afraid that you're interviewing your competitors and blah, blah. I'm like, look, what, whatever number, whether we say it's a $50 trillion industry or $60 trillion of retail assets, I've seen a lot of different numbers. 
um, the largest RAA out there is what, maybe 250 billion of assets? Ish, maybe if you thinking like CapTrust, Edelman, yeah, something yeah. like this, right? And if you were to ask, you know, a hundred people on the street if they had ever heard of one of the largest RAAs in the country, the likelihood is none of them would, yeah, right. And so even if all of the largest RAAs in our space all got to a trillion of assets in the next five years, they'd still only add up to maybe ten percent of the industry. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and I think I think the ideas that I'm seeing out there. I mean, you you see. The big guys, CapTrust, Mariner, you know, places like this, you know, doing these acquisitions and rollups, and I'm sure the math behind it makes a ton of sense, right? There's definitely a, a reason for it, um, and you see this, I think, in the fintech and the wealth tech space, right, where large insurance companies are buying technology companies, most often with terrible <laughs> outcomes and results. It's another conversation, but this kind of, you know, trying to find ways of adding incre incremental value or growing, I think, of, you know happening right and they're going to keep happening at speed yeah right which might make it easier for somebody that's an advisor that wants to have a niche lifestyle practice i actually think it's going to make that easier mm -hmm. but they have to be niche right because they can't be a generalist anymore because the generalist can you know the consumer can go online or they can go to a national-based raa like you guys or like lifeworks where you know we can take care of them really really well and align them with specialists yeah I'd say I'm I'm short billion dollar RAs. Like I think that there's gonna be a lot of hundred million dollar RAs. Agreed. And I think there's gonna be a lot of you know hundred tens to hundreds of billions of dollars RAs. Yeah. And I think that that in between space yeah. is gonna be, be yeah. Yeah. I had a, a friend call me. He's he's a partner in a, a, a what I would consider to be a large RAA, but you know the industry would consider it small. I think they manage like six hundred million of assets. Mm -hmm. um, he's in, in Michigan, and uh, when he saw the PR release about. Uh, you know, Mariner acquiring advice period, and there being some you know, partnership there with those two guys. He's like, should I even be trying to grow my business and like hire advisors and build a business, or should I just? And I said, well, I think you got to get really clear on what you want. Yeah. Right. Do you want to have a hundred to two hundred clients that you know intimately, and you have a, a fantastic income from it? Arguably, like maybe we're overpaid in this regard. Um, or do you want to try and go out there and like? build equity value and then yes you're going to probably have a little bit of a harder run at it unless you find some specialization or or technology that you're going to add to your piece mm -hmm. and he just kind of like you know said well i'm not going to do either I'm like okay you're going to be stuck yeah. right right yeah. um so i think this is i think there's some agreement there so let's uh talk a little bit about the I mean, you came from technology and, and venture capital. That was your background for getting to wealth management. You started building the technology as soon as you built the RAA, or did you already have, did you build some of the technology platform and then open the RAA? Just talk to us uh, a little bit about the the way that you view investing in technology, mm -hmm. right? And, and as, an, as an operator. Yeah, maybe yeah. as an operator. Maybe this is a little bit of the chicken and egg thing, right? Yeah. You know, we built the RAA and then realized there wasn't the technology and so started the joyful process of building technology. Yeah. Um, how did how did you guys come about that? And where does technology sit when you're thinking about, you know, investments, CapEx, you know, both as an operator and, and kind of growing it? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, this, this could be its own podcast. But <laughs> so, uh, so, so the short answer is, it was all concurrent. So, um, so one of our other co founders, Brent Weiss, uh, was a partner to actually very similar to your friend, right at a, you know, several hundred million dollar 
um, RIA, and he was the one. He the the and, and by the way, back to our origin story. You, yeah. you mentioned the, the mother thing. Yeah. We call the tale of three mothers, right? So there's my mom, Fidelity. There was Brent's mom, who um, he is a uh, as a partner in this wealth management firm couldn't actually provide service to her because she didn't have enough. Yeah, and uh, and so. Uh, and then uh, our third co-founder, Patrick, his mom was a uh, a mailman, and she delivered mail for her whole career. She had you know 350 grand or something like that saved, retired, went to Edward Jones, and they tried to sell her on uh, an annuity. And fortunately, she called him, and he talked her out of it. But it was but that was like the you know that that was the the, the mother trifecta. Yeah. Um, but in, in any event, so um, so when when Brent and I first met, and I sort of described you know, what I saw was this macro problem. He said, you have no idea. He said, you know, I have sat down and timed how much time it takes for me to do certain things and to service clients. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And, you know, he doesn't, he comes from the wealth management world, so he had no technology background. Yeah. And so we had um, uh, two other technical co-founders and, uh, and we basically, the first like six months, literally just sat in a room and watched him work. And, and just saw the problem after problem after problem. Yeah. yeah. And so we had, uh, you know, 25 beta clients that we brought. We didn't charge them anything um, and, uh, and, you know, did financial planning for them. And he went through and basically did his whole process. And so we said, okay, well, this spreadsheet, like, here's where duplicate data entry is happening and that sort of thing. And so, I mean, we literally sat there with a stopwatch and timed the whole thing. Um, and then from there, we were able to kind of build, uh, you know, build the, the, theoretical financial model yeah. um, and then, you know, figure out, okay, where's the sort of highest and, and best uh, or, or so the, the next dollar investment for technology, what's the biggest thing that we can sort of knock out. Yeah. And so, um, so the, the, I think to, to your point, like you, you guys did it the right way too, which is that you have to start with a process and then you build the technology around it. Yeah. Uh, and I think one of the bigger problems in the wealth tech space right now is that you have a lot of companies that are selling, uh, sort of one-size-fits-all technology yeah. when you have advisors who have disparate processes all over the place. Correct. Um, and then and advisors wound up, and this is not to interrupt you, this was where my head ran into the wall. And when I left a big firm, I thought, I'll get to pick my technology. We'll have this amazing client process. And next thing you know, it was like, well, we need this technology to service these clients and some of this technology to service these clients. And then we got to get this other technology to connect the technologies. And next thing we knew, it was like, we have... 15 different software things. And mm -hmm. people were like, well, tell me about your software stack. And it's like, I hate that. Like, yeah. The idea, I, I wanna have a system that runs my business, yeah. right? Um, and so I do, I, I agree with you. I think there's there's lots of technology out there. In fact, Kitsis has this map of technology providers. I call yeah. it this, this maze. Um, and, and none of them probably fit any one client or any one advisor or firm perfectly. So then they get kind of amalgamated with other ones. And yeah, so. I actually wrote an op-ed about this for Investment News a couple years ago uh, that was basically exactly what, what you're yeah. saying, which is like, you know, a wealth advisor or a financial advisor is not a CTO, right? They're not a sophisticated tech buyer. Yeah. And so you have, we have this, this term in Silicon Valley, which is like, you know, this is a, a feature masquerading as a product, masquerading <laughs> as a company. Yes. Uh, and there's a lot of those out there. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, again, sort of long, you know, medium to long-term prediction is there's going to be a huge consolidation in the yeah. wealth tech space. Yeah. Um, there has to be. There has to, and VC investing in that in those that that space has actually gone down quite a bit, um, against the backdrop of like huge increases in VC investing basically everywhere else. So, yeah. uh, so so I think that's that's interesting. Um, so you said it's a feature masquerading as a product, masquerading as a company. A company. All yeah. right, I'm gonna I'm gonna hang on to that. One. Yeah, and I'll leave it up to you to decide which you know <laughs> which companies qualify there. Um, but I do think that there's a. Uh, 
I do think actually that, that there is a role to play. I mean, um, the, the one of the bigger issues in that space is uh, distribution costs are too high, yes. right? So even if you could get the perfect product, um, the cost of actually selling to uh, to advisors is is is, is too high. Yeah. And going back to the LTV to CAC metric, yeah. that's upside down in a lot of these cases. And I think the biggest evidence is you know the largest company that has sort of succeeded in this space is Investnet, arguably maybe yeah. Orion, but I think Investnet is a as a, a public comp. Yeah. Um, and they have a three and a half billion dollar market cap. Yeah. So like, if that's as big as you can get, you know, that's not like a really like a VC investable yeah. um, space. Now, I do think that uh, here's here's another crazy long term prediction: the custodians will eventually become technology companies. Yes, because I think that that's they are the only ones who actually have the distribution pipes, because yeah. uh, every advisor that manages money needs one, and um, the their asset based businesses are really hurting right now, and I think are are over time you know will be less and less uh, of a revenue certainly of a profit stream, yeah. and um, they also have the uh, the the sort of broad view of the landscape of all the different financial planning processes, all the different asset allocation models. Like they have all the data. Um, I think the problem is they're all really big companies that are slow moving and that sort of thing. But um, you know, we work with Apex as an example, and yeah. and I think Apex is is getting it right. I mean, they yeah. they put themselves out there primarily as a SaaS company yeah. and not as a is uh, as, as an asset. Um, you know, as, as a as, as a yeah. traditional custodian, and I think that that's going to be the model of the future. Yeah, I would agree. We're we're um, actively moving to Apex with the software platform that we're building. You know, we're connected to TD and Schwab, but yeah. no offense, TD and Schwab, but when I can't click a button and open an account, and I can as a consumer on a thousand different platforms. Yeah, right. I think you're right. Custodians have to eventually become technology companies, mm -hmm. right? In the days of paper books and records and T plus three, well. It, Bill Capuzzi, the CEO of Apex, was on the podcast a few months back, and he was talking about how the industry patted themselves on the back for going from like T plus three to T two yeah. settlement. Yeah, and he's like, it's because the records are so terrible, and there's no industry-wide standard, right? And and as we've been building our technology to these custodial platforms and looking at their data structures, it's just scary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But there's an evolution. Again, there's a lot of opportunity there for somebody to do it. And I would agree with you, like Investnet, three and a half billion dollar market cap, Orion, I mean, they're still privately held, so who knows what the value of that with Brinker and some of the stuff they're doing. But yeah, we're. I think we're gonna keep seeing the large tech companies try and buy some of the new innovative ones and roll it into their you know, feature set. Yeah, and I think, you know, like the, the flip side of all this is that I think what one of the things we're seeing, like if you look at sort of FinTech funding and valuations over the last uh, few quarters, I think what we're seeing is that the markets for these new technologies and you know new way of doing things are a lot deeper than what you know people three or four years ago yeah. thought they were. Um, and when you actually look at the sum total of antiquated technology, whether it's back office, middle office, front office, you know, client facing, advisor facing, whatever, like there's so much work that needs to be done, and there's so much just to get people up to where we are today, let alone where you know what's going to be possible in in five or ten years. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't mean to say, like, I feel like I've been knocking a lot of things uh, in our conversation, but I will say I'm very long fintech. Yeah, no, I, no, I don't. I mean, I hope other people listening don't take it that way because I take it when I'm listening to these things. And, and even when we saw our terrible technology stack, and I say terrible because it was supposed to be all the best technologies, 
right? And, and they each do a great thing. But when I realized that the problem that we had there, and I'm like, we're a startup RIA. Like, if we're having this problem, yeah. like, what's a RIA that's been in business for five years, 10 years, 15, 20, you know what I mean? Um, and I see them as opportunities, right? I th- whenever I see something that's either not working or has massive room for improvement, in my mind, it's just like, we can knock that because we need to be knocking that yeah. because we can do better. It's yeah. I mean, you know, where where you where we see problems, there's lies enormous opportunity, exactly. right? Um, and you know, as we've established, it's a big enough market that a lot of us can attack it at the same time from oh, a lot of different sure. angles. And yeah, yeah. So uh, it probably is a good segue to talk about your view of the future of advice. But before we go there, I know your firm is unique and how you came into it's unique, and and um, that we were talking about how you view investing. Well, I want to wrap this one back up because I want to get your thoughts on how you view investing in technology mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe even how you think about, are you, do you consider yourself more of a technology company or more of a wealth management firm or some unique, you know, Anders Jones definition of, of a hybrid? <laughs> because as you're looking at the venture capital you've raised yeah. and, and saying, okay, we've got capital deployed, we're burning cash. How are you guys deciding and how much is going to people and advisors, let's say? marketing for client acquisition versus building and developing your own technology. And I know there's more buckets than those three, but let's just tackle those three for this conversation. Yeah. Let's close the loop on that because I, I think I asked the question and we got... Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that, um, first of all, we're, uh, we're a technology company. Okay. And I think that there's a there's a there's an important sort of nuance to that, which um, you know, I think people sometimes think like, oh, technology companies, you know, software engineers, yeah. uh, you know, that sort of thing. But there's a DNA around um, around sort of building a fast-growing startup or, or sort of disruptive company around speed and iteration uh, and challenging the status quo that um, that we possess that I think most wealth management firms do not. And so I'd say we're, we're a technology company, but we're, I mean, we're a startup above, uh, you know, more, more than anything else. Um, and so, you know, I mean, we grew, uh, uh, these, these numbers are public, but, you know, we ended um, 2019 with around two and a half million dollars of revenue. We ended 2020 with 10. Um, we'll be, That's you know, awesome. somewhere in the 30 range at the end of 2021. So, you know, 4X and 3X. Yep. And we'll be, you know, well above that, obviously, yeah. uh, in the in the coming years. And so that type of high growth environment, um, you know, we're sitting here in San Francisco. You look around to, yes. you know, some of the other company, right? Like, like that that takes a special type of person, and it takes yeah. a, a special type of kind of company mentality. It's very uncomfortable um, because you're basically reinventing yourself every six months. Not, you know, our our mission and our sort of core your values stay the your values stay the same. Yeah, yeah. but your organization changes, yeah. um, you know, every six months. Yeah. And you know, we've uh, we've our executive team has evolved, right? I mean, we you know we're six years into it, and you know we've had a few iterations on our executive team. Um, so there's you know it's, just, it's a very different kind of kind of thing. Um, so, anyways, is that with that sort of context, you know, when I think about tech investment. I think about first of all in terms of like okay you know the uh, there's sort of a, uh, a a couple different vectors that I look at one is growth is incredibly important right the market values growth more than anything else and there's also a reality where you know we are in a huge market um, it's largely you know it's it's um, it's it's fragmented enough that I'm not as worried about competition but you know again markets are efficient the more successful we get at some point, someone's going to kind of come and try and copy us. 
the bigger we can get, the faster we can get, the more of a moat we have around that. And especially in financial services where brand is so, is so important. So there's the growth bucket of investment. Then there's the, uh, the sort of client above all else bucket of investment. And I think and the two go hand in hand, right? I mean, the more that you can make your, ha- your clients happy, um, the faster you're going to grow. Uh, and so, um, and, and so, you know, with those things in mind, I kind of think about, um, the next dollar that we spend, it's either going to growth or making the client or, or the, the client experience. And, uh, and often, you know, it's a little bit of a Venn diagram, so it's not a, you know, it's not a, a one, one or the other trade-off. And so, you know, every month we get together and say, okay, here are the, you know, here's all the different competing priorities that we have. So, you know, I'll give an example, like this month we're talking about, um, you know, launching a, uh, a client goal tracker. So clients can see, okay, every, every month, yeah. um, or every quarter, here's the goals that I started out with facet and here's what I've done and here's, you know, what's left, yeah. um, which obviously has a lot of implications for client satisfaction and just being able to kind of show that our value on a real time basis. Um, you know, we're doing some, uh, some really cool stuff with apex and our account opening and there's like a, an infrastructure investment we want to make. Yeah. Um, there's some stuff we want to do for our planners. Um, to consolidate a lot of our tools in kind of in, in, in one area, um, that that's a sort of, you know, uh, team enablement uh, investment. And so then we basically all sit down as an executive team and we kind of battle it out. Yeah. And, um, and so I actually don't have an opinion on which one of those is the most important. There's also, you also look at relative effort, right? Like yeah. the client goal tracker yeah. one is relatively less effort than the Apex one. Yeah. Um, but, then, but then we have a very open prioritization discussion uh, and we also, and this gets back to the, the first point around kind of our startup DNA, we redo it every month. So we don't set a year long roadmap. We don't set a quarterly roadmap. Every month we sit down and say, okay, here's what we think that we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really rooted in this that's idea. That's a really fast run. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes we don't hit it, right? I mean, a lot of, like we picked six different things we wanted to do um, this month in, in July, mm-hmm. and we got four of them done. And one of the things that is like a fun thing, our CTO actually, who's um, you know, who, who comes from the uh, from the software world, and uh, this is his first foray into financial services. But he has this fun test where you know, when he when someone starts, when he takes over a team or whatever, he says, um, "Okay, I want you all to estimate what you're going to do today, and then tomorrow morning we're going to come back and we're going to do it again." So it's like classic agile mentality, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And it takes six weeks before someone can accurately uh, estimate what they can do in a day. So for us as a, and that's one person knowing with, with knowing the, themselves, knowing themselves, and seeing how wrong they are over time. So you think about a 300 person company yeah. that is trying to estimate, like trying to do, I mean, we'll never get it right in a month, you know? Um, so, so anyways, that's, that I think is actually probably more important than the decisions that we actually make is the methodology of how we make the decisions. And, and most important is the speed with which we revisit yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. So tech company. And I think it's interesting because I would probably describe our company as morphing from wealth management into a tech company that does wealth management. Yeah. Right. And which is a small nuance to it. But when you view the dollars, whether you've, you know, VC money or, or organic revenue that's being invested into building more of those things, I mean, they're being built to improve the client experience. Yeah. Right. To do the work better. Yeah. Faster, less expensive, things like that. Yeah, and I think this is where like you can be a wealth management company and still sort of subscribe to this 
this idea and this sort of way of being and still be incredibly effective. Yeah. Like you don't have to be a technology. Technology makes everything easier. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I think that that's like, it's a very, very important nuance. There's a great book, uh, which you might've read called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Mm, I don't um, think I've read that one. Oh, it's, okay. it's hard, hard thing about hard things. Yeah. Who's the author? Uh, ben, Horowitz ben Horowitz of okay. Andreessen Horowitz fame. Okay. And he has this great line in there that says, um, uh, there's no such thing as a silver bullet. There's only a thousand lead bullets. And, um, and, you know, I've sort of added on to that, uh, and the, the way that you succeed or your, or your success is determined by how quickly you can fire those thousand lead bullets. It's a constant game of iteration, yeah. right? It's a constant game of iteration. Um, but yeah, that's uh, my, my number one book on entrepreneurship for sure. Definitely. We'll have to read that. Yeah. Awesome. So, okay. So that answered my question. Um, about kind of how you view investing in technology. I think the Venn diagram of those three three buckets makes sense. Before we jump into getting you to you know pull out your crystal ball and picture the industry and, and talk about yeah. the name of the podcast, The Future of Advice, what are some of the big challenges that you see facing advisors and firms today? What are some of the other big challenges that you see sitting out there that for the people that are either advisors inside of a large firm or maybe they own their own RIA or they're an executive at a at a more established, larger firm? Like what are some of the, you know, common challenges that you see? So I, I will preface this by saying I don't spend a ton of time with uh, advisors outside of Facet yep. uh, at this point. Um, so so it's hard to know, but I mean, some of the, the key themes that I've heard, I think are, um, and, and these, you know, kind of ring true to a lot of the conversation we just had, like this sort of embarrassment of FinTech choices mm -hmm. or wealth tech choices. Yeah. Right, there's too much choice out there and there's a big mismatch between the level of sophistication of the average advisor who's trying to figure out what the best product is um, and sort of like, you know, what it takes to actually put together uh, a wealth tech stack. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, ironically, like, you know, those products are definitely being sold, right? Not oh, bought. for sure. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so I guess it all comes full circle. But um, but the um, so, so that's one, I think, for sure. Um, you know, I think that there is a uh, there's this huge desire to work with the mass affluent market, yeah. right? I mean, for as long as I've been doing this, there's been this discussion around, yeah, the, you know, the mass affluent market is where it's at. No one's figured out how to actually do it, and so I feel like there's a constraint around, um, you know, where people are going to to develop business, mm -hmm. and you know, it's it's really really crowded, you know, above a million dollars, you know, a million dollars and up. And so uh, it just it gets harder and harder, and it's, I think it's more cutthroat to to develop business there. So, um, so so yeah, I mean I, that's definitely one of them. And I and I think also like, um, you know, there's that great line, and this is getting a little into future predictions, but from uh, the the sun also rises, uh, which you know he it, it, one of the characters asked him like you know how did you go broke, and he said. Um, uh, very gradually and then very suddenly, you know, <laughs> yeah, I've heard um, that and, before. And I think that there's, that there's something to be said for, um, I think all of this is going to come together quickly. quickly. Yeah. And I think over time, you know, you're going to have people who say, I, I don't want to pay an asset based fee anymore. Yeah. I need financial planning. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't have a million dollars. I still want help. Yeah. Um, you know, your, your website or your client portal sucks. Um, you know, I don't have money for you to manage, right? Like all these things yes. are, and, and, and then you're gonna have also like massive consolidation. Yeah. Uh, and so I think like, like in the next five years, like this is all gonna come to a head. Um, and I think it's gonna be a lot of, a, a lot of shaking out. Yeah. yeah. 
No, that's awesome. So uh, this is a perfect segue then to talk about the future of financial advice, right? So you've already, you, you've laid a big one out there that I think, you know, I might even just ask you to keep expounding on this one, but where do you see, where do you see both the industry and, and you know, the relevancy of an advisor being? Well, let's make those two separate things because those are, those are different. Where do you see the industry being? Well, let's start with the advisor. Okay, start with the advisor. Yeah, because okay. I think this is, a, this is a good, like, bottoms up thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is, like, let's go back to first principles of, you know, why do people work with an advisor? Yeah. Like, it's because you have the human interaction, yeah. you have, you build a relationship, you rely on their expertise, you want someone to hold you accountable, um, you know, you want someone to kind of, you know, share in your journey, you want someone to tell you, like, hey, it's going to be okay, or like, right. hey, I'm giving you permission to do this, right? That's a huge, it's amazing. I, I mean, You've probably experienced this too, right? It's when like you're getting ready to make the largest decision of your life, you want to look somebody in the eye, even if it's over a Zoom call. Yeah. And you want to have somebody else there when you make the decision. Yeah. Right? Exactly. That's, that's it. I mean, most of my clients, I always, you know, when we, when we look at it, they're bright, savvy, sophisticated. Either they've owned businesses, they've been executives, they've been engineers. You know, it's not for lack of knowledge and sophistication and ability. It's truly just they're smart enough to recognize that these big decisions should have some outside voice to them. Right? Yeah. There's wisdom there, I guess, is, is what I would say most of our clients recognize. Yeah, totally. And, there, and it's also interesting, it's like there's no real benchmarking for your financial life, right? You can't be, like, I don't know how old you are, but, the, but you know, someone in, in your Almost age. Almost 40. Okay. <laughs> that is, well, uh, but like, you know, like, like people in their, you know, mid to late 30s, yeah. um, like, look very different, right? And so... Uh, so, you know, there's no real way to say like, okay, well, you know, I'm 38. I should, I should have this much here and I should have this much in retirement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. Cause you also have four kids, yeah. right. Uh, you know, I'm roughly in, in your age and, uh, I have no kids. I'm not married. Right. So like my life should be very different. You know, my life is, is very different. And so, um, you know, so there isn't any one sort of like place you can go to get a DIY answer that says like, oh, okay, well, here's where I fall on this benchmark. So I should yeah. be, you know, I should be fine. Like you have to have that. Um, that face-to-face, -face, um, you know, the trust, the trust relationship. So if we, if we're in agreement that that's where an advisor's value lies, and I think more and more people are going to realize that over time. Um, and I think that consumers are getting smarter about this. Mm -hmm. Like, like if I had to take a bet, like a huge macro bet, like I would always take the side of the consumer will know more and understand more tomorrow than they do today. Yeah. And so you have to take that into account. And so I think people are just going to be looking for, um, you know, for the real sort of root value of, of working an advisor. And, you know, the advisors that are set up to deal with that, both from a, here's how I structure my time with a client. Here are the things that I talk to a client about. Here's how I charge the client. And also here's how I acquire clients. Um, because you actually want to be acquiring clients in the context of these bigger life questions, not in the context of retirement planning. Correct. Right. <laughs> or, or returns. Or returns. I mean, I, I talk to probably more advisors than you do um, just because of how I'm yeah. how I'm going into the industry. And I'm still amazed at how many of them set their value prop on comparing their portfolio to somebody else's. And there, there could be some value there, right? But it's selling your value on returns is uh, setting yourself up for absolutely getting your knees cut out yep. underneath you, right? I mean, it's just danger. Yeah. Total danger. Yeah. 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 Um, so anyway, so you know, so the advisors that set their businesses up that way, I think, are going to be the ones that going to be the ones that win. I also, I, I do think that, uh, and it pains me to say it because I actually I really like the independent advisor community, and I, and I think that there's a lot of goodness in uh, in how the standard of advice has evolved over the last 
uh, decade or so and how, how like there, there are a lot of really good people in this industry, but I'm long-term fairly bearish on sort of the, the independent advisors. Um, and so I think there will be consolidation there. Uh, I think it just, it, it just makes sense from a, you know, from like a market structure standpoint. So if we're sitting at 30,000 RAs today, I bet in 2030, there's fewer than 5,000. Well, in some regards, I think it, I, I would also agree with you, it has to, because in, unless that advisor is partnered with somebody who's doing you know, back office work, let's say, just to pick on something like portfolio management, trading, execution, clearing, you know, an advisor shouldn't be positioning themselves to a client, in my mind, as being the person who's doing the investment research, doing the due diligence, building the portfolios, yeah. running the operations, managing their team, and oh, by the way, still focusing on your plan. I mean, it's just impossible for one person to do that. And you have to get to a certain size and scale or be willing to constrain your income and take the revenue from your firm and hire to those people. Yeah. Which I think for advisors who step back and look at it, if they want to build a business and they want to play the return on the equity side, great. There's lots of opportunities out there for it. I don't think most of them actually do. I think most of them want to play the, the, the cash flow maximization, right? The lifestyle practice game. Mm-hmm. And that one, my, my, my take would be you know, partner with people that can do the things and automate the things for you really, really well. And yeah. then find the one thing that you do amazing work for for your clients and do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and there are um, and there are models out there that are starting to pop up where you can actually outsource all, uh, yes. all the stuff, right? Like XYPN, I'm actually a big yeah. fan of theirs. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they, from a mission standpoint, are very aligned with what, uh, what we do. They have a very different way of getting there. Correct. Um, you know, which is around enabling sort of individual advisors, but you can, I mean, some of their, their case studies are awesome where you look at like, um, you know, folks that have, uh, you know, folks that, that have like basically outsourced everything except their relationship management, um, which I think is, that's, that's a good way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Let's, uh, let's, uh, wrap up this conversation. You and I could probably go for hours longer on, on specific things. I always ask the, at the end of this, a two part question, um, and so here goes. Uh, answer it how you want, but here's the two. Here's the first part of it. If you could give one piece of advice to a young, next-gen, hungry advisor, and let's say that's somebody who's a millennial and younger, young, next-gen, hungry, growth-oriented advisor, what would it be? I would say go back to first principles of why you got into this industry and what you want to get out of it. Because listening to sort of the conventional wisdom uh, is a very dangerous thing to do at this moment in time. I think that the conventional wisdom is peaked and it's very much backward looking, not forward looking. All right, that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, second part, what advice would you give the owner of firms, independent REAs, small firms? Same deal. <laughs> okay. But I mean, seriously, like, uh, you know, there, there has, and I can say this because we're not in the M and A game at all. But like, yeah. there is, um, you know, I, I think that there has never been a better time to uh, to think about selling selling your company. I, I would agree. There's just the sheer number of great large RAs that are out there paying very, very good valuations for businesses is, I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, who knows how much longer this market's going to run? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, four years ago we were sitting here saying the same thing, right? Um, but at some point the music will stop. And so, um, you know, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. And what, uh, what are some of the big things that we should expect to see from facet, Ah. say the next three to five years without giving away what's coming? What are some of the, 
What do you hope Facet looks like in three to five years? I mean, we really want to be, a, I call sort of a, a, a standalone generational company, right? Like we, if you look at sort of the, the uh, disruption that happens in other industries, um, you know, every 15 years, you know, a company will come along and challenge a large incumbent and, you know, either succeed or, you know, or, or whatever. But like, you know, the, the, the innovation will, will proceed apace. And I think for us, if you look at financial services, like who was the last true startup in this, in this industry that... that didn't, like not a robo. Not a robo, yeah. But like that, that is a meaningful standalone, like I'd argue Fidelity, right? Um, maybe BlackRock, they don't have a retail business, but like, or Schwab, yeah. right? I mean, we're talking about some behemoths. They're all great companies. And, um, you know, and if Fidelity is public today, probably a multi-hundred billion dollar market cap. Um, but there hasn't been like a meaningful... Uh, I'll use the word challenger, yeah. uh, you know, to those business businesses or business models in the last four or five decades. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at the opportunity that we have in front of us, I look at um, the way that we're solving the problem. I look at our product market fit and all of the metrics that I can see about how much our clients love us and how fast we're growing. I think we have the, the opportunity to be that uh, to be that next generational financial services company. And so, you know, we're in this for the long haul. Like we, you know, we've raised a lot of capital. Like yeah. you said, we'll raise more. You know, it wouldn't shock me if there's an IPO on the horizon at some point. Um, that would be exciting. Yeah, I mean, this is like we're we're really in this for the for the long run. Yeah. Um, you know, to bring this full circle to the first part of the conversation, like you know, this is a legacy thing for me. And so, you know, as I say to my team, uh, you know, I, I hope this is the last job I ever have. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I mean, I I, I will continue to watch you guys and root for you guys' success. I think the more the more you know, companies like yours that are started that challenge the traditional, the status quo, that that focus on serving clients and bringing technology in and, and, and building building the technology to do this uh, at speed and scale, I think is an, is a necessary thing. So really excited! I, I love this conversation. I appreciate you carving some time out of your schedule to be here. Yeah, for and, sure. Uh, and uh, look forward to having you on the podcast and seeing how your uh, prognostications about the industry, the, the 20 or 30,000 RAs down to 5,000 comes true and, and um, you know, some other questions. So thank you for being here. Hope you enjoyed it. That was great. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. And for our listeners, again, my name is Ron Bullis, the CEO and founder of LifeWorks Advisors. If you want to learn more about Facet Wealth, you can find them at facetwealth.com. You can also follow Anders on Twitter, which is at Anders Jones. He's also on LinkedIn and some other social media platforms. If you are an advisor or you are in the industry and you want to get a sense about where it's going, I would say there's very few people in the industry that are a better indicator of where to be watching and uh, to see the, tra the trajectory of what the industry is going to look like in the future than Facet Wealth. So until next time, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Future of Advice.